Well, I want to say Happy Mother's Day to those who are celebrating. I want to say Happy Graduation Day uh, to many who will be celebrating that today as well. And we know we have people celebrating things all around. And, and Happy uh, New Old Pulpit Day. Um, Ed, thank you. Have we said that yet? This is, this is the pulpit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As David reminded us a few weeks ago, this is the pulpit that was saved from the church fire a hundred years ago. We're on the anniversary of that. And Ed has taken it and with time and craftsmanship made it. It even has that new car smell. It's really nice. I'm going to take it for a test drive today and see if it works out. Thanks. I don't think this was original, but it's going to work, right? That's good. Thank you. We pray together. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here together be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And as the word goes forth, may it land on good soil, may it take root in all of our hearts, and may it grow into the world as you would have it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So on Ash Wednesday, we started this series called Jesus Stories, and then for Holy Week, we took a pause in that series for several reasons. We've stayed on that pause, but we're going to pick it back up right now and carry it on for several more weeks. But since we took a little bit of pause, here's a little bit of a review. The word parable comes from the Greek word parabole, which literally means to toss alongside implying a comparison or an analogy or an elaboration or an illustration. And the best known, uh, the best known definition of a parable comes from C.H. Dodd who said, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application in order to tease it into active thought. Now that's all pretty good and probably hard to follow, but it's helpful because it reminds us that the sources for these stories are both nature, like the one we just heard a moment ago, and common experience like the prodigal son, and that their function may be like a simile, he's behaving like a Jayhawk, something like that. Or even stronger, like a metaphor, he is a Jayhawk. And I know that will resonate with some of you very strongly in different ways. C.H. Dodd also points out that parables are meant to both get our attention and to keep the meaning from coming to us easily. We're supposed to be able to understand, but also we're supposed to work at understanding. And this is a very important point about parables that we need to pay attention to. Teaching in parables is meant to put a burden on you, the listener. That is not necessarily intellectual, but rather it's meant to tease our minds into active thought. So the burden of parables is not on the teacher, but it is on the listener. This is why we included some space in there for taking notes today. And we hope you have your Bibles open so that as the parable encounters you in its own unique way, as I quickly try to interpret it, 
that however God's word hits you today, you might be able to wrestle with that in your own way and remember it later. Parables must be interpreted. And the burden of interpretation is not on the teacher, but on us. We must all play an active role in interpretation and in the formation of our own faith, which is something I think this congregation can really get behind. We are a thoughtful church. That's one of the things I immediately loved most about you all. This is a thinking congregation. You love ideas and you love exploring ideas. And I've always felt, I think I've said this before, that one of the unstated values of Second Baptist Church is nuance. We're drawn to nuance. And I think that's going to serve us well as we continue to, serve, to study these parables together. I think it's also worth noting that teaching in parables seems like it would be the kind of preferred teaching method of a teacher who liked nuance and who didn't feel threatened by the fact that the ones he would be teaching would hear in a variety of different ways in their own minds. And he not only didn't feel threatened by this, but he invited it. He invites us to do this, to each wrestle with, interpret in our own way. So let's accept the invitation now as we look briefly at this parable of the sower that many people call the parable of all parables. It's one of the only ones where Jesus actually spends some time interpreting some of the elements for us, though we'll see as we go through it that even some of that is left up to multiple layers of interpretation. And to get a good look at that, I want to look briefly at each of the elements, the sower, the soil, and the seed. And we'll start with the sower. Because I believe an understanding of the identity and character and intent of the sower could be a message in and of itself. We could stop there today. My understanding of a sower uh, comes from two sowers or farmers I have known. I say into Jeff earlier, he was with Rick Burnett, I think last week, is that right, in Florida? And Rick uh, is one of the sowers I have known and the other sower Rick introduced me to was a guy named Uncle Tisa and I think I've talked about him before. Rick Burnett is the founder of the Upland Holistic Development Project in northern Thailand where Christy and I lived and worked for a while and where we as a church have a partnership now and some of you, we've been there together and some of you have been there on your own. And when Rick and Ellen started the Upland Holistic Development Project, the intent was for it to serve refugees who were being placed on dead pieces of land in Thailand. Pieces of land that nobody wanted. And with this in mind, and with the idea of helping them by helping the land they were being given come back to life, uh, Rick decided to choose a piece of land for the project that was dead. There was nothing growing on it. It had been dead for years. And so the goal would be to bring this dead piece of land back to life again, and then to use what they learned in doing that to serve others. In this process, plants would not grow easily. So they would start by planting seeds in nurseries, and, and they would cultivate these in these kind of greenhouses. 
And then when the plants would grow up just enough where they were strong enough to survive in some pretty difficult soil, they would take them out and plant them in that soil in hopes that the work of the plants growing would help bring the soil back to life again. And over time, with great effort, they saw this happen. After about six years, earthworms, six years, after about six years, earthworms began to appear in the soil of UHDP again, the land that is now today flourishing. In many ways, UHDP is its own parable for the kingdom of God. So there's Rick. And then there's this other sower I met while working with Rick that we called Uncle Tise. Uncle Tise was a hill tribe man who literally appeared to me in a puff of smoke like a smurf, wandering through the woods. He was dancing through the woods, smoking marijuana. And this was how he made his grand entrance into my life. Tise actually lived on healthy land and had cultivated a healthy amount of seed. He, had li- he was carrying this bag of seed around with him. And because he did, he was far less careful in his planting of seed than Rick. In fact, he seemed reckless. Seed was costly for them, just as it would have been for poor farmers in Jesus' day here. And Tise would just walk around flinging the seed everywhere with little worry about where it would land and how it would grow. And Uncle Tise is exactly the kind of sower, see, that we're supposed to see in this parable. Some might say the sower in this parable is reckless. Others might say the sower in this parable is generous. The sower is operating from a place of abundance that he is flinging seed far and wide with very little hesitation, knowing that some of it will land on good soil, probably hoping that some might even land on not so good soil and instead be taken away or destroyed or might actually somehow participate in the rejuvenation of the land by going into those dead spaces. I do find it interesting that while Jesus says something to his disciples about the identity of the seed and the soils, he does not tell us the identity of the sower. So who is the sower? Who is the sower? Is it God? Jesus? I think so. Jesus is sowing seeds even as he speaks here. And he can see exactly what kind of soil those seeds are landing on. We shouldn't miss the sadness in Jesus' words. Jesus knows how the life he came to give us will not take root in many of us. And so the sower is perhaps Jesus in one way. And in another way, the sower is the God of all creation, the one Jesus refers to as his Abba Father. The sower, in fact, could be, as we wrestle with this story, both, for sure. That seems pretty theological anyway. And so what does the generous or even reckless activity of this sower tell us about God? 
probably a lot of things, and you can write those things down, but at the very least, that God always operates with us from a place of absolute abundance. God always operates with each and every single one of us from a place of absolute, absurd abundance. Moving on. Jesus tells us that the sower's seeds fall on four kinds of soil. Some fall on the path. Some of the seed falls on the path. Now, paths are intended not to receive seeds, but to be walked on. Paths are beaten down and paths are smooth. Some paths have even been asphalted and we know hearts that have been asphalted too. They're smooth and often quite presentable. They're useful when we want to get somewhere and there's nothing wrong with that, but the fact is seed can't very well take root on a smooth, useful, presentable, well-beaten path. A person who is only a path through which daily traffic passes often, who is no more than a busy street where people go rushing by hour after hour and where there's never a moment of rest, will hardly provide the soil where an eternal seed can grow. Next. The sower says that Jesus says some seed was gobbled up by birds and taken away, which I find interesting, both because we all know there are things in our lives that take us away from God's work in our lives, things that distract us and direct us in other ways, things that keep God's word from fully germinating in us. We all have things like that in our life. And because we know that sometimes when a bird devours a seed, it it carries it to another place. And the seed passes through the bird, right? And it, it lands, already fertilized, in this other place where it grows in ways that no one ever anticipated or expected as a sign of life that was unplanned and unanticipated And guess what? The Spirit works this way too. And then Jesus says there is seed that falls on the rocks. In the beginning, it seems like something is happening with that seed. Like it's actually taken root, but it doesn't last long and the effects don't either. We can all think of examples of this, right? Shallow sometimes only emotional and ultimately momentary unrooted faith that we have witnessed in others and in ourselves. And then there's the faith or the seed that falls among the thorns. It is rooted. It falls among the thorns and it's rooted and then it it grows, but other things... Thorny things are also allowed to grow there too. This happens too. What are are the thorny things that are growing in your life right now? What are the thorny things in your life that you continue to nurture that are actually threatening the growth of God's life in you even 
now. See, Jesus says the thorny things may eventually choke the life out of other things. Even divine things that are trying to grow alongside them. And finally, there's the good soil. The seed falls and the growth seems almost effortless. The soil is healthy, it's rich in nutrients and fully prepared to receive the seed and then the, the plant just grows right up and it would seem that the point is to be the good soil, right? It would seem like the point of the parable for us, the hearer, is to be the good soil, though we all know that if we're honest, all these soils exist in the landscape of each of our souls right now. In each of us. And so, what we may need to wrestle with today What each and every single one of us may need to wrestle with today, and what we may need to do is ask where those rocky places are within us. Where are those thorny places in us? Where are those smooth, presentable, and yet unreceptive paths in us that need to be tilled and plowed so that the seed of God's Word can begin to bring life to every inch of the soil of our souls. See, we have a tendency to think we have a tendency to think that the seed of God's Word needs to first be sown out there. But what many of us need to do today is to look in here and to see what needs to be tilled up in us so the seed of God's Word can first grow in and through us. There's a progression we see here for reasons that may become evident in a moment. But while we're at it, what is the seed of God's Word? Some would say it's the Gospel. Some would even say it's the whole gospel, the whole good news of God's love, Jesus' life, God's love, God's kingdom, God's rich and abundant life. And I think that's certainly true, though that's not all that's true. Because I think there's a deeper truth here that if we were still in Sunday school, we'd be easily able to name immediately. I mean, what is, what's the answer in Sunday school when you don't know the answer? There you go, Chip. Jesus. That often is the answer, Jesus. And if we said that Jesus was the answer to this question, I think we'd be right. Because Scripture is God's Word. Jesus says it's the Word, right? Scripture is God's Word, but Jesus is the Word. And so with that in mind... Remember what has to happen for a seed to infiltrate the ground and bring about life in the soil and through the soil. It has to die. It has to die, the seed has to die, and then through the death of the seed, life breaks forth in the soil and through the soil. The seed that is the Word of God is the Gospel. And it is Jesus 
And it is also you. We see this with a closer reading of the text. That just as Jesus may be the sower and the seed, we can also be the seed and the soil. The sower is attempting to sow God's life in the soil of our souls, and the sower is attempting to use our lives as seeds of God's life that God can fling generously out there into the world so that we are sown into the soil of the world, the soil of creation, the soil of other human souls, that the life of God might also grow there too. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. What are you hearing today? What are you hearing today? What is God saying to you today about the landscape of your own soul? Where does hard ground need to be tilled, plowed, broken so that new life can begin to grow? What is right now being sown in you and what might God want to sow into the world through you? We need to wrestle with these things. The burden of interpretation is on you. It's on us. So with that in mind, I want us to continue listening to the text. Hope your Bible's open, you can read it. Or continue listening to the Spirit, the Word that has been flung out into this space, landing on different kinds of soil. Before we sing our final hymn, Julie's going to play, and I want you to spend some time in prayer, reflection, journaling, there's space in the worship guide, asking what it is that God is trying to say to you now through this parable. Let's see where the sower is leading us.